how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Revelation Part 4, The Fallen Prostitute. There are three women in the book of Revelation and none of them is a woman. That sounds a bit of a conundrum. In fact, they are all representative of either a group of people or a city or something else. And uh, the first woman is in chapter 12 and that's one of the most difficult chapters of the whole book to interpret. I didn't skip over it for that reason. I'm going back to it now. We have an unusual picture in chapter 12 of a woman who's pregnant, who's dressed in nothing but sunshine and is standing on the moon and is facing a multi-headed scarlet dragon uh, standing on the earth and waiting to devour the child that she's about to give birth to. Now there are three possibilities of interpreting that woman. Uh, first, as uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, that's uh, the normal Catholic interpretation of this chapter and the child she's about to bring forth is of course Jesus and the devil in the shape of Herod is waiting to destroy the child to which she gives birth. I don't believe that fits the book of Revelation. It's totally out of time or out of sync, as we say, with the events of history. It belongs in the Gospels, not here, and there's no reason whatever why Jesus should go back to his birth at that point in his revelation. Second interpretation is that she represents Israel, but once again the child to be born is the Messiah, and once again the devil is waiting to destroy the Messiah. Again, I don't think it fits. Again, it's going right back through centuries uh, and isn't relevant. I believe that woman represents the Christian church and the, she is giving birth to the overcomers and particularly to martyrs. And the devil in the shape of the dragon is waiting to kill her offspring because it says that the woman flees to the wilderness for 1,260 days and is kept safe there. Now that fits Revelation and it fits the big trouble at the end of time, that the church will not be wiped out, that much of the church will survive, uh, but that God will snatch up to heaven those who die for him and thus defeat Satan's object in wanting to destroy the church. Well, those are the three possibilities and I'll leave you to choose, but I've told you which I have chosen and I think it makes most sense in context because that period, 1,260 days, is exactly the same period as the big trouble, the great tribulation, as the 42 months and the times time and a half a time or three and a half years and so clearly the to me, the woman is the church kept safe in the wilderness during that time. It is at the, in the same chapter and at the same time that Satan is finally cast out of heaven by the archangel Michael or Michael to you. And if you go to Coventry Cathedral again, outside you will see this gigantic sculpture on the wall 
of the Archangel Michael throwing the devil out of heaven. And that's when he comes to earth determined to destroy the church, determined to be the king of this world finally and completely. So that's chapter 12. But now we're moving on to another rather gruesome painting. These paintings were done either by Hugh Shelbourne or a friend of his in East London. Some of you know him. And uh, there were a series of paintings done to illustrate the book of Revelation. We're moving now to the second woman and later we'll look at the third. In fact, we could uh, talk about the rest of Revelation as the story of two women or rather the tale of two cities for they each represent a city. This woman, a filthy prostitute, represents Babylon and the other woman is a pure bride and represents the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So the whole of the rest of the book is about these two women and these two cities in contrast with each other. We are still in the big trouble, in the great tribulation, the last years of this age and we are now looking at the capital city of the world. Where it is, I don't know. It doesn't say it's the former Babylon rebuilt, but it is called Babylon. And that name is given to Rome in the first epistle of Peter. Rome is described as a Babylon and it's a name that is used throughout the Bible for all that is godless, all that is secular, all that is sinful, all that is wicked. You see, in the Bible, most cities are bad places. They concentrate people and therefore they concentrate sinners and therefore they concentrate sin. Sin, vice and crime are always worse in urban areas than in rural areas, partly because of the anonymity of the city. It's easier to be secret and hide and get away with things. But all through the Bible, cities have come from the line of Lamech, and Lamech was the first producer of mass weapons for destruction. And you get art and music in the line of Lamech too. So cities, arts, music, culture comes from the wrong line, not from the line of Seth which led to Abraham but from the line of Lamech. And therefore all through history uh, urban areas have been corrupt places and the arts and the music within them has been corrupted and is polluted. That is not to say arts and music are bad in themselves, but they have tended to be corrupted all the way down the line from Lamech. Now then, we're concerned in chapters 17 to 20 with Babylon, this filthy prostitute riding the dragon. And this of course goes way back to Genesis 12, where we have a city built on human pride, the Tower of Babel, which we've brought into our languages babbling, which means to speak in a language nobody understands because it was at the Tower of Babel that God came down and saw man's pride in building a tower that would reach up to heaven. His pride at saying, I'm God, I'm as high as he is, I can do anything I put my mind to. And that city of human pride erected by Nimrod, the hunter, the man who hunted people as well as animals, that city became a picture, a focus for this concentrated sin of the city. The city concentrates pride, ambition, aggressiveness. 
You'll find more ambition and aggressiveness in the city of London than most other parts of England. It concentrates lust. You'll find more homosexuals in London than anywhere else. It concentrates greed. It concentrates anger. Riots don't break out on the village green, they break out in the city. And so you have this concentration of fallen humanity in cities and Babylon was the first and the worst. Its name means the gate of God actually, but it became the place where God first gave the gift of tongues. I've heard preachers say the gift of tongues is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. Of course it is. God gave it, but the first time he gave that gift it divided people. Centuries later he gave the same gift on the day of Pentecost and it brought people of all nations together. But God first used the gift to separate people into different parts. Well now that's Babylon and it grew up to be the city of Nebuchadnezzar and the greatest enemy of Jerusalem, the city of God, and it was the Babylonians who came and destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. So we have here the city of man, Babylon and the city of God, Jerusalem, and the two are in opposition, antagonism all the way through scripture right to the end of history. Here we're looking at the last Babylon of all. Where will it be? I do not know. If I started speculating I might even guess somewhere around the Pacific Rim. But already the spirit of the last Babylon can be seen around us not least in the competition to build the tallest building in the world, which is going on right now. And here is a page from Time magazine showing this intense competition. There's the Empire State Building, which is now dwarfed by so many others. I think that's right. No, there's the Empire State Building, but now there's a much taller building in Kuala Lumpur where I will be in three weeks' time and I shall see that completed now. That's now the tallest building in the world. But here's another being built which will be about three metres higher in China. But here's the biggest that's now planned. It's on the drawing board. A British architect Foster is designing it for Tokyo. For Tokyo. It'll be a building housing 50,000 people not just to live but to work, to be entertained. They will live inside this pinnacle and they're building that tower which is 800 metres high in an earthquake zone. <laughs> the pride and the confidence of men. Some of you will have seen a TV programme about this, but the race is on to build the tower reaching to the heavens. And uh, at the moment until Kuala Lumpur it was the Sears building in Chicago but the race is on. Let's be the biggest and the best and we're the highest. We're above everybody else. We see the spirit of Babel, of Nimrod and of Babylon here developing. There's more than that. Let's just take it a bit further. Babylon, by the way, is not a religious city in the book of Revelation. It's not Rome. I'm afraid that there was a time in the Protestant Reformation where the Protestants called Rome the Scarlet Woman and the Catholics returned the compliment by calling Luther the Scarlet Woman and that's behind most of the troubles in Northern Ireland to this day. It's tragic. It is not a religious city. It is a thoroughly pagan city. It is dedicated to mammon and materialism and to pleasure on the other hand. 
It is the financial centre of the world at the end of history where all the money comes and it's a city of pleasure, a city of music. That's why the city is pictured as a prostitute who takes your money and gives you pleasure. And that's a vivid picture of this world centre. We don't know where it'll be but we can see shadowings of it already. I've just taken a kind of um, mosaic of Las Vegas. Somehow that seems to be a foreshadowing of the city. But worse than that, I went to Frankfurt-on-Main, which is vying to be the financial capital of Europe, and uh, I saw some extraordinary things, including a golden calf at the European Stock Exchange, but also in the main bank. I went in and in the reception area was a mural two metres high around the walls of a large reception hall, painting of hell full of demons with every known sin portrayed here with people up to their knees in Deutschmarks with demons laughing at them. The whole thing was hellish. And then I went through to the next room where you go to the till or go to the counter to get cash and there were life-size bronze statues of naked men and women queuing at the same counter in the last stages of debauchery and decadence great fat naked businessmen next to skinny diseased prostitutes and you have to queue with these statues to get any money from the bank. And it just seemed to me this is Babylon, this is it, this is what it's all going to be like. Just sheer corruption, mammon, materialism, live for pleasure, this is the last city of history. Well, what are we told about Babylon here? Some extraordinary things. We're told that Babylon will fall. And the extraordinary thing is how it will fall, how it will be destroyed. It will be destroyed by politicians, not by God. The politicians, says the, this chapter, will be jealous of the fact that the businessmen are really the power in the world and the businessmen and commerce are controlling politics. Does that sound strange to you? Not to me, because now with international corporations and by the year 2000, all the business of the world will be in the hands of 300 gigantic corporations. We see it happening. And the jealousy of political rulers against the commercial boys will erupt and it is the political rulers who will destroy Babylon. God will put it into the minds of the politicians to destroy the business centre of the world. You think that's out of the question? Why do you think Hitler got rid of the Jews? They controlled the banks of Germany. And politicians will cut off their nose to spite their face when they're jealous of their power and see it in the hands of another. That's the lesson for Babylon. Now what are Christians going to do about all this? What is their attitude to this world centre of finance and pleasure which Babylon has become? We are given one clue and that is that this city will be on the seashore and that when it is destroyed, ships at sea will see the smoke rising from the port. So it's going to be a sort of Hong Kong. 
could be anywhere in the world. We don't know where it'll be, but it will be the World Finance Center and where all the businessmen of the world will go, not just for business, but for pleasure. That is why she is pictured as the prostitute, wants your money, gives you pleasure. Now then, three things are said to the believers in connection with Babylon. Number one is, this woman will be drunk with the blood of the saints. In other words, there will be more martyrs there than anywhere. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. There will be Christians trying to bear testimony to Jesus in that city and they will pay for it with their lives. That's the first thing that's said. They will be seen as the enemies of all immorality and all money-making and so they will be killed. That's the first thing, no place for Christians there unless you want to be a martyr. The second thing that is said to the Christians is, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Now we notice that the Christians have not been taken out, they have to come out. They have to leave that place. We're right in the big tribulation here, the big trouble. They have to come out. Secondly, we notice that they have to come out for their safety, not for their salvation but for their safety because the city is going to be destroyed and if they're still in it, they'll be destroyed too. So come out of her, my people. Thirdly, the martyrdom of the church is obviously not going to be total because there will be those who come out. It is already becoming more and more difficult for Christians to be part of huge financial centres, getting more and more like professional gambling, money trading and all sorts of things going on. But it's going to be impossible and Christians will need to come out of all that before it reaches the climax of it all. And the third thing that Christians are told is that when Babylon falls, they are to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Now imagine that. This means that all the stock exchange of the world will collapse when the big one does because they're so interlocked now that one tremor in New York or Tokyo and London's shaking and the whole thing is computerized and all tied up into one almost already. But in the last day what happens to Babylon the whole world finance system will collapse, the banks will close, everybody's savings will be gone, stocks and shares will be worth nothing and the Christians will be saying, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You know? Now actually, if you've ever heard Handel's Messiah, the hallelujah chorus is taken from Revelation 19 and it is the celebration of the collapse of world finance and the worthlessness of banks. And whenever I go to Handel's Messiah or hear it played, I want to shout out, do you know what you're celebrating? <laughs> it would wipe the celebration off their faces <laughs> if they realised they're celebrating the collapse of world finance and the end of all banks and stock exchanges. But that will happen. And I'll tell you this, the Christians will be the only ones shouting hallelujah. It'll sort out the men from the boys very quickly. You know people stand when the hallelujah chorus comes? That's because the King of England thought it was over and stood up to leave and everybody had to stand up with him. But the tradition stands on. Whether we, whether we stand for it or not, 
we ought to remember this is a celebration that that world capital is doomed and is finished. God will not allow it to go on. Well now all this is concerned with this big trouble and we've now looked at the different phases of it, we've looked at the capital city in the middle of it and we've looked at this uh, Babylon, this scarlet woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the final collapse of all that. So that brings the big trouble to an end but I want to say a little more about a very urgent question which is being debated all over the world among Christians and really it is very simple, will Christians go through the tribulation or not? Will we be in all this or out of it? Because about 1830 a prophecy was given in Scotland actually, in Port Glasgow, which has gone round the world and the prophecy was to the effect that Christians need not fear the Great Tribulation because they would be caught up before it happened and taken away. The verb usually used is raptured because in the old Latin version of 1 Thessalonians 4 describing being caught up in the air to meet the Lord, the word for caught up is rapto from which we get the word rapture. And so this theory which has now gone worldwide since 1830, there's no trace of it before that and the man who made it popular was the founder of the Plymouth Brethren or the Brethren as they prefer to be called, a man called John Nelson Darby. He didn't convince all the Brethren, George Muller, the founder of the orphanage, said he was wrong and so did uh, Benjamin Newton and S.P. Tregellis and a number of the early brethren. But such was the power of Darby's personality that it became almost orthodox for the brethren movement and if you've ever been in the brethren or brought up you will have been told that the church will be caught up in a secret rapture and that God will come twice, uh, the Lord will come twice, once for his church and then another time with them. So he comes for the saints and then a few years later comes publicly with them. The first visit will be secret, private and only the Christians will know and suddenly they'll all be gone and then he will come back publicly. It crossed the Atlantic and a lawyer called Dr. C.I. Schofield brought out a new edition of the Bible in which he put this idea in the notes within the Bible. Never buy a Bible with notes because however disciplined you are, you will not remind yourself constantly that bit's the word of God and that bit's the word of men. You will say, I read it in the Bible. And once the Schofield Bible had gone everywhere in America, thousands of Christians believed they'd read in the Bible that we shall be taken out of the world before the big trouble hits us. And now it's become even more popular through the writings of an ex-student of Dallas Seminary and Dallas Seminary in Texas is totally devoted to this view and the student was a man called Hal Lindsay and his books have sold by the million. Now I'd love to believe it, it would be wonderful if the Lord was saying you don't need to worry about all this because you won't be in it, I'll have taken you out well before it happens but I can't find that in my New Testament. I thought I'd just show you the 
the seven reasons that are given for believing that we shall be taken out of it before the big trouble. The first is the statements in the New Testament about the speed of his coming, I'm coming soon, I'm coming quickly, uh, which is taken to mean that he could come at any moment, that his second coming is imminent, it could be today, it could be tonight. The second are the statements about the surprise of his coming, that it will come like a thief in the night, like a complete surprise and we just won't know it's happening or at least we don't know it will happen until it does. The third uh, point they make is that the language of the New Testament points to two comings rather than one and uh, they try and distinguish between day of the Lord and day of Christ for example or the word meaning his arrival and the word meaning his appearing or the phrase coming for his saints and coming with his saints, there is an attempt to divide what it says about the second coming into two events by putting some words and phrases in one and some in the other. The fourth is to say that the early church expected him any moment and uh, such phrases as he is at the door and this generation will not pass away before all these things happen and on that is built an idea that we must expect him any moment and of course that couldn't happen if the big trouble has to happen first. Obviously what we've read in the last few chapters of Revelation either has to happen after we've gone or will happen before he comes. And then the next is that in the whole of chapter 6 to 16 the word church is never mentioned, the word elect is mentioned and the word saints is mentioned but this is applied to the Jewish people by those who hold this view, it doesn't apply to Christians, therefore the church is absent in chapters 6 to 16 or even chapters 6 to 19. Next, the emphasis on comforting one another with thoughts of Jesus' return, in fact 1 Thessalonians 4 says encourage each other with these words, with these thoughts of being caught up to meet him in the air and people say how can that be a comfort if we've got to go through big trouble first? Surely it's only a comfort if it's going to happen before the big trouble. And finally um, that the tribulation is the outpouring of God's wrath on the world and we are not children of wrath and God's wrath is not on us because we are forgiven and in Christ. Now that's a pretty impressive list of reasons but frankly when you look at them carefully they are not so clear. For example, I'm coming soon quickly. Well, it's 2,000 years already so we've got to think about what that means in a different way. It does not mean I'm coming any moment. It does mean that for God time is relative and a thousand years is one day and one day is a thousand years. So it's only been a couple of days since Jesus was here in God's experience, though I can think of one day that must have seemed like a thousand years to God, can you? The day his son was on the cross. Those promises, I'm coming soon, I'm coming quickly, are being forced to say any moment. They don't say that. They teach us to believe he is coming soon and to live with that in our hearts and to look forward to it. But it's overdone to say it means any moment. Secondly, the statements about surprise. Paul says 
to the unbeliever and to the sleepy believer he will come like a thief in the night, but not to believers who are alert and watching. That's a very important distinction. He does not come like a thief in the night to us. If we are watching and praying and looking for the signs of his coming, it will not surprise us. It will surprise unbelievers and sleepy believers who are not looking for the signs of his coming, but clearly it's not a thief in the night to everybody. There is no way you can divide the language about the second coming into two events. The same words and phrases are used of his coming and of both apparent events, whether it's for his saints or with his saints. All these phrases refer to one single event. I have not found a single statement anywhere in the New Testament that clearly says he's coming twice. He's coming once. He's been here once and he's coming once more and all the language applies to that once. The expectation of the early church, they did not expect him any moment. They hoped it would be in their lifetime like every Christian generation, but they'd been told, I'm sending you to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. How on earth could they expect him any moment if the gospel had to be preached to all the nations before the end could come? just doesn't make sense. So uh, clearly they hoped it might be in their lifetime, but they knew they had a big job to do before he could come back. They even hoped that the Apostle John would live until he came back, but that was a rumour which is scotched at the end of John's Gospel. The absence of the word church in Revelation 6 to 16 and only the word elect and the word saints, which true are words that are applied to Israel in the Old Testament, but they are also words that are applied to Christians right through the New Testament. And there are at least six epistles of Paul that don't use the word church, but do use the word saints. So we're making an artificial distinction here. And frankly, there is one verse in chapter 14 of uh, Revelation which to me kills all this dead and it is the verse, this calls for endurance on the part of the saints who obey the commandments of God and remain faithful to Jesus. If all the Christians are gone, who's going to remain faithful to Jesus? Again, it doesn't make sense. The martyrs go, yes, one by one, but the saints are the believers, the church and they're in it. To put it very bluntly, why on earth should Jesus give the revelation of the big trouble in such appalling detail if we're not going to be here? There is no reason whatever for telling us all that if we're not to get ready for it. And frankly, it would be bad for us to know what others are going through if we don't have to. Would it help us to be better Christians? Oh, you're going to really go through it. We're off. It produces a rather nasty attitude in Christians to believe that everybody else has to go through 6 to 16 and we don't. And lastly, no, the emphasis on comfort, the comfort is not a kind of hot water bottle word or cotton wool word. The word comfort has the word fort in it and in biblical language to come fort means to strengthen you, to make you strong, to resist, to make you a fortress. That's what the word comfort means. It doesn't mean there, there, it may never happen. It means to make you strong. The comfort of the Holy Ghost comes not to make us nice and happy, but to make us strong. 
able to stand firm for the Lord. And the real source of comfort, our blessed hope, is not to be snatched up before the tribulation. Our blessed hope is that Jesus is coming back and the three and a half years of horrible things will give way to a thousand years of peace and plenty. There we are. Finally, this is probably the strongest argument for an escape before the big trouble, and yet God is able to protect his people when he pours out his wrath. Have you noticed that Revelation 6 to 16 reads rather familiar? It reads rather like Exodus. You ever notice that, the plagues in Egypt? And what happened during the plagues in Egypt? God protected the people of in Goshen from all of it. He's able to do that and he's able to protect. In fact, to one of the seven churches, Jesus wrote that when the big trouble came and all the others, that one would be saved by Jesus from that trouble. And God is able to protect his own people when he's pouring out his wrath on the world. And that's what we've seen. The woman flees to the wilderness and survives through the 1,260 days. And frankly, if you want more of this, here comes the commercial again, my little book, When Jesus Returns, has dealt with this in very full detail and the whole book of Revelation. And if you're really concerned about this question, do read that. But I cannot find a single clear statement in my New Testament that says Christians will be taken out of the world before the big trouble. And I would have thought that in such a huge issue, the Lord would have at least said once, plain and simple, you won't have to go through it. I do believe in the rapture because the rapture means meeting the Lord in the air. And I do believe in that. The question is not do you believe in the rapture, but when do you think it will happen? Now finally in this whole discussion, I know I'm treading on a lot of corns because you'll read an awful lot of literature that comforts you the wrong way. I would like to say this, I'd rather be wrong my way than the other way. I'd rather tell you you have to go through it and get you ready and then find you don't have to, then tell you you don't need to, and then find you have to. I think that must be pretty rough. Somewhere I've got a, a quote from a dear lady called um, Corrie ten Boom. Did you ever hear her, that lovely Dutch woman? Bless her, she spent the last years of her life paralyzed with a dreadful stroke, but she listened to her nephew playing the violin and she listened to some of my tapes apparently. I didn't find that out until later. But Corrie ten Boom wrote this, I have been in countries where the saints are already suffering terrible persecution. In China the Christians were told, don't worry, before the tribulation comes you will be raptured. Then came a terrible persecution. Millions of Christians were tortured to death. Later I heard a bishop from China say sadly, we have failed. We should have made the people strong for persecution rather than telling them Jesus would come first. Turning to me, he said, tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution and how to stand when the tribulation comes how to stand and not faint. 
I feel I have a divine mandate to go and tell the people of this world that it is possible to be strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in training for the tribulation. Since I have gone already through prison for Jesus' sake and since I met that bishop from China, now every time I read a good Bible text I think, hey, I could use that in the time of tribulation, so I write it down and learn it by heart. Isn't that beautiful? And her little time of tribulation came, but she was ready. She'd stored the Word of God in her heart. She was ready. So I'd rather be wrong my way than the other way. And I've told you what I believe to be the truth. We are in for trouble. And Jesus is calling us to stand firm, to overcome and keep our names in the book of life. That's why Revelation was written to those seven churches who are about to face the biggest test of their loyalty. Will you say Caesar is Lord or will you only say Jesus is Lord? We'll move, move on from there in the next talk. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.